Galatians 4, 21 through 31, Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has made many more children than she who has, not, who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word that, that calls us to grace and away from slavery, for, for your love that is there that tells us that we have been purchased as your sons out of slavery and that there is so much to be had there, so much to rest in there. And I pray, Father, that, that you would speak through Kevin as he comes to deliver the message, that, that he would be able to communicate the truth of your word empowered by the Spirit and that we would be uh, hearers of the word and also doers and that we would be changed as we leave here today. In Christ, and we pray. Amen. Good morning. Uh, grab a seat. Um, we get somebody to get the lights back in the back as much as I kind of like the MTV unplugged feel that we've got going on right now. It might be nice if you guys could actually see me. I appreciate you guys being here this morning. My name's Kevin. Uh, as you guys heard earlier on the announcements um, that were crazy thrown together. Uh, sorry about that. I'm one of the pastors here. I appreciate you guys being here um, this morning. Kind of a couple quick housekeeping things. One of the things that I uh, wanted to mention during announcements and kind of forgot. Um, we've talked for a, a couple weeks now about how um, we're going to be going to Columbia again in June. Um, what we'll be doing kind of this trip is partnering more with the church Alumbra, which is our, our church plant in Barranquilla. And so one of the things that we're going to be doing um, while we're down there that week is we need some people to go that will, will help us put on a VBS for the kids, primarily the ones uh, whose parents serve in the church in some capacity or function, although they will be um, kind of like bussing in kids from the different areas where Manos meets as well. Um, but then what we're going to be doing for the other time is we're going to kind of lead like a um, almost, uh, I hate to use the term revival because that's like a, a very southern thing and my whole sermon last week was kind of like railing on the culture of the south so I have to <laughs> kind of like watch myself here. But that in reality um, we'll be doing a lot of um, discipleship training, ministry training, leadership training for various people within the church. And so if, uh, if you're interested in doing that, we'd love to help you. And you, you don't need to feel like you need to be a ministry leader or if you're like, I hate kids, but I, I'm not a ministry area leader. I don't know what to do. We will equip you and prepare you for that week. And then one of the things we'll do too is not everything will be done on site there. Some of what we'll be doing too is what we did while we were down there this last time, which is just doing intentional evangelism in the parks, which is a ton of fun. Um, 
it's way more fun than doing it in the USA because people in Colombia are nice and they actually will talk to you. And so, uh, and if you're like, ah, my Spanish is bad, right there with you. My Spanish is terrible and I got into a very deep discussion of the Trinity with three high school students in a park in Colombia. And, and like some of them spoke English too and then finally we were like, okay, this is spiraling out of control, where's Gabe? And we called Gabe over and Gabe came and helped us and kind of saved the day and clarified any heresy that was going on within that conversation. So anyway, uh, we're going to be going in June. It'll be the, the week, if you're taking summer classes, it'll be between summer A and summer B. Um, is Mario in here right now or is he, is he, there he is back there. Okay, so if you will go see Mario after church, um, he's back there in the back waving his hand. Give you more information about what that's going on. By the way, for those of you guys who are like, ah, I don't know, whatever. We did this trip for under $600 last time. I don't know exactly what the cost is going to be this time. It'll be a little bit more because the plane tickets will probably cost a little bit more. But that's still really, really cheap for a missions trip. And it's a direct flight directly to where we're going. There's no layovers. And so it's a really, really good opportunity. So I would highly recommend you pray about it. Uh, we'll start solidifying the team for that sometime in, in early to mid-April. So uh, you've got a very, very limited amount of time. And typically, the longer you wait, the more expensive the plane tickets get. Although we did have a few people that waited the last minute last time and somehow got cheaper plane tickets than us. I don't understand that. But sweet. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. You heard Derek reading, reading earlier to you guys from um, the, uh, a, a different... Um, Translation that I'm used to, although I appreciated that. <laughs> so I think it was a New King James, actually. It was kind of nice to hear that. I haven't heard that translation in a while. By the way, good translation. Uh, quick aside, uh, people ask me all the time, what's the best translation? We use the ESV here. There's a couple reasons for that. I'm not going to get into the specifics of that. Um, please just use a translation that you're going to read. That's what I always tell people. Use the translation that you're going to actually read. If, you, if you're like, I'm a King James only, but you never read your Bible because you can't understand Old English, you should probably pick one that you're actually going to read. So here's my official plug for the best translation being the one that you're going to read because I want you reading your Bible. All right, so Galatians chapter 4, we're going to finish that up this morning. Um, and this will be the last time we're in Galatians for about three weeks. Next week I'm going to start a series uh, for Easter because we are th like three weeks out from Easter. Um, and we're going to be kind of with that series, what we're going to be doing is kind of looking at different um, historical characters within the gospel narratives and what their view of the cross would have been. So, so, so historically what they actually witnessed and walked through uh, during Jesus' final days and weeks on earth and then immediately following his, his resurrection, kind of what they walked through. But then also we'll talk more importantly about the implications of what the cross meant for them personally. Because here's the reality, right? And here's the, the good news of the gospel. All of us are coming from different backgrounds, different cultures. We have different sins, different things we struggle with. And yet the reality and the truth of the gospel is that what Christ accomplished on the cross meets all of us in our deepest and darkest hours to communicate the truth of God's love to us. And so we're going to be talking about that over the next course, uh, couple, a couple three weeks or so. And then we'll bounce back into Galatians chapter 5 and finish that up. But as we finish um, Galatians chapter 4 this morning, I kind of want to jog our memory about what Paul has been doing throughout the book of Galatians up until this point. Um, and, and, and really in reality, guys, he's been fairly aggressive with the Galatians. Um, you know, he's used language like, who has bewitched you? He calls them foolish. He tells them that they're in slavery. You know, it's not your, your typical rah-rah, um, pom-pom waving letter that Paul writes to the churches frequently in the New Testament. 
And so when, when we're going through the book of Galatians, we see that he wants them to recognize the danger of the trap that they've fallen into. That what they've done is when Paul arrived in the, 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 the region of Galatia, right, he preached the gospel to them, he shared to them the good news of what Jesus Christ had done, that, that they were by nature alienated from God for their sin. And in the midst of that, God sent his only son to die as a substitution for their sin and credit them Christ's righteousness. That's a, the message that, that Paul preached to the Galatians over and over and over again while he was in that region planting churches. And what they had done is they'd taken that message and they had traded it in for a false gospel with these Jewish religious teachers that had, had moved in that said, okay, we believe Jesus is necessary, but we also think that you must observe the Jewish traditions and customs in order for Christ's death on, to, on the cross to really be effective. In order for the cross to have really bought us from our sin and our shame, I must also convert to Judaism and follow the Old Testament law in order for the gospel to be effective for me. And, and we talked about this last week, and, and last week I know it was a little bit of a tougher sermon. I had a few people come up to me afterwards and talk about how they were encouraged, but they were also really challenged. And, and here's, here's the reality, right? What the Galatians issue primarily was is an issue that almost all of us struggle with, and that's the fact that following Jesus is a complete surrender of your control over your relationship with God and your standing before God. Meaning to accept Christ is to surrender control over you being able to perform or do something. It's a complete surrender of control over what it means to even walk with God and know him. It means that you are humbly submitting, saying, I am nothing, God is everything, and God has done everything for me. That is the declaration of someone who follows Christ according to what Paul preached. And so what we do is we try to take the commands of God, which are good, and make them into something that we can do. We try to perform, we try to earn God's favor. And one of the things that Paul has been pounding into the Galatian churches throughout the course of this letter is that, look guys, the purpose of the law is that it's to teach us the moral good, the standard by which God expects his creation to live, that the law also is meant to be, a, 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 in a restrictive sense, a common grace to us, and that you will be less likely to sin if you know what the standard is. And here's what I mean by that, because some people are like, I have no idea what Kevin's talking about. A lot of us in this room would love to go 45 in a school zone if there wasn't lights posted flashing saying you will get a ticket that's very, very expensive if you go over 15 miles per hour in this school zone. The law in that case doesn't necessarily, in, in some way, shape, or form, make you want to do the right thing. It forces you to do the right thing because of fear of punishment. That the law is not meant to motivate you or change your heart. It's simply meant to bend your will into following the law of the land. 
right? Oftentimes, an example I shared a couple weeks ago is how many of you guys have ever wanted to have stolen something but didn't because you knew the consequences of stealing? You didn't become a good person when you made the right choice. You still wanted to do the wrong thing, but the law itself, out of fear, bent your will to follow it. And so by God giving us the moral law, in some way he is encouraging and restricting unchecked sinfulness of the human race. And then lastly, the last thing we've kind of been kind of pu- putting out there, and this is really, in my, in my opinion, kind of been the most important thing that we've been trying to kind of break down and decode about the law, is that what the law ultimately was supposed to do is to teach us God's standard, but then reveal to us the reality of our condition. Right? I've been using that analogy over and over again that the law is kind of like a, a, a medical test, and I've been using the example of my son Josiah who has epilepsy and every time he has a seizure and we go into the hospital they hook him up to an EEG and that EEG confirms whether or not there's actual abnormal brain activity going on. That it's meant to confirm that he has a seizure. But the EEG itself does nothing to heal my son or even restrict the brain activity going on his brain. It simply reads what's going on. In the same way The law was given to reveal to you and I that we fall short of God's standard. It in no way changes us. It in no way is the cure for our sinfulness. It simply is given to us to show us the fact that there is a problem. And so what Paul has been doing in chapters 3 and 4 is using Scripture... And by scripture, I mean the Old Testament. Using Old Testament scripture to prove his point that the law was given to reveal sin, but the promise was that God would send Christ to redeem us. And that the only way to God and to continue in him is to trust in the gospel, not in obedience in the law. That has been what he's been doing over and over again. So he's been running back frequently to the Old Testament to kind of point this picture out. And this is where he lands this morning, finishing up in chapter 4. Look at verse 21 with me. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he he opens up by saying, tell me, which is, is like a, basically what Paul's doing, he's shifting the letter now from being more informational to being argumentative. He's saying, okay, Let's open up the debate. You guys are really smart. He just got done saying in his last paragraph that I preached the gospel to you. There was nothing you guys would, wouldn't do for me. You guys were super helpful. You helped me in a season where I had a, a medical condition. You loved me well. And now all of a sudden you're rejecting me, saying that I don't know what I'm talking about, that these new teachers that have moved into the region are smarter than me. They know how to get to God, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, you guys tell me then. This is, this is how he's setting it up. If that's the reality, if that is true, you guys tell me. And look at what he says. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And read that again. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Let me translate that. How are you going to desire to be under the law but not actually listen to it? Because that's what you're doing. You're telling me right now that to be a follower of God, I need to be underneath the law and following it. But here's the reality. You don't listen to it. 
you pick and choose which parts of it you think are the most important to follow, but you don't follow all of it. Specifically, the things that they were following in these particular churches were the ideas of circumcision and observing the Sabbath and the holy days. But they weren't even observing all the kosher rules. And so the reality is, is they were going through the Old Testament law, picking and choosing what things they thought actually made them acceptable before God, and then the rest of it they were like, eh, it's not a big deal, we don't really need to worry about it. And so when Paul's using this language here that says under the law, he's not just saying someone who believes that the Old Testament law is right or good or it exists, but he's saying someone who seeks to find their justification through their performance under the law. Meaning, they look to the Old Testament and they think, okay, I can earn God's favor by following this. And this is kind of the point I was trying to draw out last, last week, that, that in the South, I think this is a real issue because we, many of us grew up in the church and we're not far removed from one or two generations within the church. And so we reduce following God down to measurable spiritual things. And so we might say something like, if I go to church enough times a month, or if I'm involved in a group, or if I'm serving the homeless, or if I'm tithing enough, or if I'm not cussing as much as I used to, and you create these lists of things that you're going to do, and you narrow down, or you pin down following God to be one of those things, or a combination of those things, and you seek to find your justification within those parameters, and what I mean by that is you think, you look at God and you think, God is someone who must be pleased and kept happy. And so I must do these things to keep God happy with me. And if I don't do these things, then God's mad at me. And you, you, you kind of play this game with God that, as my, as my pastor friend in, in Virginia used to say, you play red light, green light with God. And when you're doing good, anybody ever play that game, by the way, Red Light, Green Light? How many of you guys have played that game in here? Okay, good, a good majority of the room. I got these like blank stares, and I'm like, am I the only preschooler that ever played that game? Right, so you guys are familiar with how that game is played. Right, you're standing there, and there's a person who's the leader, and they say red li uh, green light, and everybody runs, and they say red light, you're supposed to stop, and if you keep moving, what's the person do? They send you back to the beginning. And so you're always like playing that game of like, and this is one of the fascinating things about us as human beings. How many of you guys would always try to get one more step in after you heard red light? Right, a few people are honest, Somebody, and then my, my wife's like, never. I would never cheat in that game, ever, because that's how my wife is. She's a rule follower. And me, I'm always like, if I can, like, you know, do, like, one of these numbers, so you're running, and then, like, oh, yep, stopped, right? Right, and get that going on, right? That was actually a fairly graceful move I just pulled off right there, by the way. But you're running through there, and you, you, you stop or whatever else, and you think you've, you're, you're playing this game, right, because you want to win. And a lot of us treat our relationship with God in that way, right? It's like, okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm gr green light, green light, green light, green light. And then sin, red light, stop. And then what happens too is if, it, if the sin becomes habitual in some way, you think, oh my gosh, I haven't grown spiritually at all. I'm back at the beginning. And you've been sent back to, the, to start over again, right? By the way, none of this is biblical, right? This is this is that idea of the, the therapeutic, moralistic, deistic God that I pointed out a couple weeks ago that we tend to want to follow as human beings, right? We've, we, we try to reduce God down to something he's not, which is this angry, manipulatable, right, deity that where if we do the right things, we can manipulate him in some way, shape, or form and earn his favor or his trust. Right, and we do it for all sorts of reasons. We do it both to justify ourselves, but we also do it to manipulate him to get what we want. 
thinking that he's some sort of genie in a bottle, right, where if we do the right things, he'll do what we want. And this is why I said last week when we were talking about the Greek and Roman gods, that this was such a problem for them because they would have completely understood that because the way that Greek and Roman mythology worked is if you sacrificed and did enough good things to that particular god, they would follow through whatever it is you were looking for. So whether it was fertility or safe travels on the sea, you followed the God in that particular realm and served them so that they would serve you. And the issue here is that the Galatians were running back under the law to try to manipulate and control things. And Paul's saying, look, You're running back to the law to try to justify yourselves, but you don't even keep it. If, if, at least if you're going to run back to the law, be honest enough to say that you need to keep all 500 plus rules written in the Old Testament. That you can't pick and choose which ones you want. Which, by the way, sounds an awful lot like our churches. Right? We do that thing where we think we need to obey and do the right things, but we pick and choose which ones we want to do. It makes me think that that old woman that was on Ellen one time, right? I, I've seen this on YouTube. One person knows exactly where I'm going already with this, right? But she's like, she's talking to Ellen. Ellen's like, oh, you're so sweet. And she's like, well, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. Right? She grew up in the South, so she reduced following God down to, well, I love Jesus, but, you know, I can't really drink. But I do do, I do, do it a little bit, right? So she's confessing her sin right there on national television. Right? But the reality is, is we reduce God down to following these types of things, and, and let me pause here for a minute, because if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, right, one of the things that can, can come out of us preaching grace and, and freedom in the gospel is that you walk away thinking, well, I can do whatever I want, and, and Jesus is just the get-out-of-jail-free card. There is an expectation as followers of Jesus that we would be obedient, but here's the reality. The expectation is something that is a hopeful expectation that actually comes to pass because you have a new heart, new desires, and in that, God is changing you and molding you into the image of his son. And in that molding of that image, you are becoming more like him, and you can't stop it. That the mark of a true believer is someone who sees life change because God is doing it in you. But it's not done through behavior modification, which is often what happens when we start trying to reduce that down to a list of things. And, here, and, and, and here's the, the lunacy of trying to do that, by the way. Let me just throw this out there for a second. Who gets to set the standard on what proper obedience would be in the first place? God. Yet oftentimes, even within communities of faith, when we create what we're supposed to be doing, who's creating those lists? Men. They're creating what is supposed to be done and, they're suppo and, and what's supposed to be followed. And man is creating those lists. And that's why inevitably they fall short of the standard every time anyway. Just like here in the churches in Galatia. This reminds, you know, the, 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 what the Galatians are struggling with here, this idea of wanting to be under the law and not following it, reminds me of this guy I knew in college. Where... Yeah, I, would, I met him at the gym, and we, he ended up becoming friends, and this is before I, I, I came to know the Lord, and I remember sitting in the gym with him one day, and he was like, you know, not lifting well and kind of struggling, you know, so he's sitting there, and he was one of those guys that would, you know, do two lifts and then wait 20 minutes before his next lift and drink. Some of you guys know that guy at the gym. If you are that guy, I'm sorry, I'm getting ready to make fun of you, but... Um, 
the, he's sitting there, and I'm like, man, what's going on? Like, you seem just like kind of down in the dumps. He's like, yeah, my girlfriend broke up with me. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you had a girlfriend, you know, because I hung out with this guy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we've been dating for like four years. You know, I really love her, man. You know, I, you know, I just, I love her so much. And I'm like, well, what happened? Well, she found out I was cheating on her. Come again? Yeah, man, you know, like, yeah, I, I really want to be with her, you know, but I just want what we're doing right now to be open. And I, you know, I, I, the look on my face must have been like, what? <laughs> He's like, well, you know, you, like, you understand what I'm saying? I'm like, not really. He's like, well, you know, you know I love her, but I just, you know, I'm not ready for that commitment yet. And I remember thinking to myself, dude, you don't really love her. You love the idea of her, but you don't really love her. You really loved her, right? You would be motivated to keep your hands off of other women and her until you were married, right? That would be the reality. That would be the motivating factor because you would be doing whatever you could to win her heart and win her affections. If you really loved her, you'd be fighting for her, not running around on her. You wouldn't be trying to reduce down what you're doing. In the same way, the Galatians are like, look, I love the law, but I don't really keep it. I want to follow God. I want to be obedient to him under, underneath the, the law here, but, but I'm not going to keep it. And remember, remember, by the way, guys, that if anyone's going to know what following the law is supposed to look like, it's the guy writing this letter to these churches. He was one of the leading Pharisees of his day when he was within that party. Meaning, it wasn't like the Jewish religious leaders could say to these, these, these churches in Galatia, oh, Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about about the law, so you don't want to listen to him. He 100% knows what they're talking about. He lived that life out. He lived out the very life he's preaching against in this letter. He's like, look, I know what you're trying to do. I tried to do it myself. Can't be done. Can't follow God in that way. Doesn't work that way. And then I love what he does here when you get to verse 22. He's going to start playing on the cultural pride of these Jewish religious leaders. Look what it says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. All right, so here we go. Paul's gonna play on the Judaizers' love of Jewish heritage. So let's throw up that, that passage in, in Genesis chapter 12. I'm gonna run us through the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar really quickly and give you a fly-through of what Paul's trying to unpack for them as Jewish Christians, and I'll use that term Christians in quotation marks, because they love their Jewish heritage so much. Okay, so here you have Abram in Genesis chapter 12. God shows up and look at what he says. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So very, very bold promise to Abram here, right? Leave this land, and in leaving this land, you're going to have a child, and in that child, all nations will be blessed. All of them. Every single nation, every single tribe, tongue, culture, all of them will eventually, through your line, be blessed by me. 
That's the, the promise that he lays down. Okay, fast forward to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham's getting old. He has no kids, and look what happens. And Abram said, and this is him talking to God, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and look at what God says. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So this is where Abram's at. He's like, okay, God's going to bless me. I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to have a great nation. A bunch of things are going to happen. The whole world's going to be blessed through my line. This is awesome. Then he's starting to get old, and he's, he's still trusting God, but it's starting to wane. He's like, look, God, I, you know, you promised me an offspring that was going to do all these things, and I, I'm really struggling to see you coming through here, God. I don't have an heir. So God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you a son. You've got this. Okay, so next part of the story. We're not going to go through that because it's a lot of passage. So here's what happens. Abraham tells Sarah about the promise, and she's really excited at first. She's like, we got this. Okay, more time passes. More time passes. More time passes. And what do Abraham and Sarah start doing? What any of us would do. They freak out. Like, oh, God promised us this thing, but it's not happening. So, so here's what we need to do. We need to take matters into our own hands. To, to follow through on God's promise for him. Because God's not powerful enough to do this on his own. We need to follow up and act ourselves so that God's promises might come to pass. So Sarah says, and this was a very common practice during this time biblically, she had a servant named Hagar, and he says, all right, she's like, all right, honey, I can't conceive. You take Hagar, go into her, right, and have the son, and that will be the son of the promise that God has given you, because this must, this must be what God wanted. And so Abraham has relations with Hagar, Hagar has a kid named Ishmael, and then all of a sudden, right, not surprisingly, what's Sarah's reaction to this whole situation? She's ticked. Right, she comes to resent Hagar, dislikes her, starts treating her harshly, and, and Hagar cries out to God, and God mercifully removes Hagar and Ishmael from the camp and kind of takes care of that particular line of Abraham. Now in the midst of all this, God comes to Abraham and is like, look, this isn't how this was supposed to happen. I'm telling you right now, the promise I gave you is going to come through your wife, Sarah, not through you trying to manufacture and create this on your own. And so... God sends someone to Sarah and says the same thing to Sarah. And what's Sarah's response? She laughs and doesn't, doesn't believe. And what ends up happening? She conceives, has a baby in her old age, and that baby is Isaac. And that is through where the promise that God had given Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 comes through. So now, go back to Galatians chapter 4, knowing that timeline and what's going on. Paul says, look, there are two sons of Abraham, but one of them is a slave to the slave woman, and one of them is to the free woman, and then he starts breaking some things down. He says, those who live according to the flesh live under the slave woman, Hagar, but those who live according to the promise, which is seeing its fulfillment in Christ, because he already talked about that earlier in Galatians chapter 4, are free from the power of sin over them. So here's Paul's point. And it's the same thing that God was teaching Abram. You can't do it, but I can. 
you can't save yourself. You can't perform. You can't earn my favor and my trust. But I will do it for you. I will perform for you. I will create a miracle for you. And this is how it's going to be done. Right? Like, and this, this is, this is, this is, I actually think this is a beautiful illustration. Because look at what most, what the, the point I'm making is that most of us within the southern church culture tend to do is try to narrow down following God into some sort of measurable, attainable goal. It's according to the flesh. It's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. They tried to make the miracle that God was going to perform in them and for the nation of Israel and for the whole world into something that they could perform and do on their own. And so when it wasn't happening, they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll manipulate it and bring Hagar into this situation and have her join in on the promise. It's like you and I saying, oh, well, I can't perform per perfectly, but I can do enough good things and God will be happy with me and I'm a good Christian then at that point. Right? We try to add and do these things and, and, and manipulate ourselves and I can make this happen. And God is saying throughout the totality of Scripture, when He makes a promise and a covenant with us, the only one who can come through and follow through on it is Him, and it's a miracle that He does so. With the miracle of Sarah conceiving, the promise moves forward. The miracle of what Christ has done on the cross and His death, burial, and resurrection conquers far more. And so he's saying, look, there are two ways to be related to Abraham. Because that's really what this is entirely connected to. At the core of all of this is Jewish national pride. And the way that we relate to the promise to Abraham. And he's saying, okay, there's two ways to be related to Abraham. One's through the slave and one's through the free woman. And here's the reality. The Jews... Specifically, the Judaizers, they're saying, well, we're a part of the promise because we come from the line of Isaac. I can trace my family lineage and my family history all the way back to Isaac. And you guys can't. You can't, you can't do that. And Paul's saying, nope. There's only one way to be traced back to that promise, and that's to be through the offspring of Christ who was the ultimate fulfillment of the promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And by running back to the law, you are showing which woman you are under. The slave woman. Instead of running to the gospel and being under the free woman. That this is a heritage issue that manifests itself more deeply as a gospel issue, how one relates to God and what he's done for them. And he's going to expand on that in verse 24. Look at what he says. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be, one will be more. 
than those of the one who has a husband. All right. Now, that is a fairly confusing passage. Okay, there's a lot being said there. Let's start with this first line there in, in, in verse 24 where he says that, that this can be interpreted allegorically. And let me try to correct something really quick here, okay? Some of you guys know what an allegory is. For those of you guys that missed, I think it was 10th or 11th grade English that explained that to you guys what it is. You're like me. You can Wikipedia it and f figure out that, that allegory is like a literary device used to, to communicate a hidden meaning. So it might be like a poem or something like that, and that that poem or whatever it is is, is actually being used to communicate a truth about something, something that is reality. Okay, now... Let me, let me just start by saying this, because I think this is a frequent problem that people run into. The Bible is not typically meant to be read allegorically. That, that the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is frequently historical narrative, not allegorical narrative. And, let, and some of you guys are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, let me give you an example. How many of you guys are familiar with the story Gideon and his, and his 300 men? Okay, about half the room. All right, let me tell you real quick. Gideon is this, this Jewish judge. God has given over the enemies to him. He has this huge army. God ends up creating a, a series of events to whittle that army down to 300 men. And then those 300 men run into the camp and basically have a huge military victory that day. Okay, with 300 guys. All right. Now here's how typically... In 2017, when we're reading the Bible, we tend to read an Old Testament narrative and then allegorically we interpret it. You're like, oh, okay, Gideon is 300. This is a great story. This is like me. I'm Gideon and my slow pitch intramural softball team is my 300 men and we suck, but we can still do this. Right? This is, this is God's word to me right now. Like, I, I know this to be true. Right? Or like, I'm David. And, and my enemies out there are Goliath. You know, school is Goliath right now. And I've got my stones and I'm going to sling them and I'm going to destroy everything. No. If anything, the story of David and Goliath is a foreshadow to the greater David, Jesus. Let me tell you guys something. You're not David and you are certainly not Jesus. And so the Old Testament is not written. This is, this is the problem what we do. We read the Old Testament, we're like, okay, i got to find a way to, to fit myself in here to figure out how I relate with this. Knowing that God is not, tr not trying to do something because here's the reality. The Bible's not about you. It's about God. And so when we're reading these stories, right, allegorically, we create issues for ourselves because we start making them about something they're not. When really in reality, the story of Gideon and his 300 is a story of God's faithfulness in the mount of insurmountable odds because God is all-powerful and can do whatever he wants. And that when God has chosen to do something, he does it. And that you can trust him and rely on him in the midst of what he says, and you will see God's faithfulness through. Same with David. David wasn't some great warrior. He trusted God and God showed up. Over and over again, that's the theme. And if you stick yourself in there, you're going to create issues. Because inevitably what happens is you might think that you're Gideon in the 300, but your softball team is still bad. Right? I found out really quick that the older you are, the better you are at slow pitch softball. 
I graduated high school, went off to college, came back with my friends my first summer, and we're like, this is going to be awesome. All of these guys have beer bellies. They're in their late 40s. There's no way they can run. We're going to win this easily. And then all they started doing was just hitting home runs off of us like crazy. And meanwhile, we were somehow striking out in slow pitch softball. That the reality is... Right? I could have read that story and like shared with my team and given them a pump, uh, like a, a, a pump talk, a pep talk, and shared the allegory of what's going on there, and then we would have walked out there and still been bad. Because that story is not for us and not for that situation. But here, in this particular situation in the New Testament, Paul says, but the story of Sarah and Hagar can be interpreted allegorically in this situation to understanding the gospel, to understanding how it works. And it, and it can be understood through the idea of what he says there are two covenants. One, Hagar, Mount Sinai, represents the law and being kept underneath the law. Represents being bind, bound up underneath the law, tied completely to your need to perform and keep it. And the language he uses to describe that are slavery and ultimately fear. That ultimately, those living in that covenant live in fear. Because they know the reality is, is they don't keep the law. They know the reality is, is that they don't perform. And so they're constantly looking at God and wondering, when is he going to smite me because I don't perform like he tells me I need to. And you're miserable. You're anxious. You're fearful. Sometimes you're prideful because you are doing well through certain seasons and you're miserable, be to miserable to be around for other people. But that's the reality of who you are. And he says, the other one is Sarah. And she's the new Jerusalem. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, 1. And remember that Isaiah 54 is, is written to a group of people who are about to be in exile. And when they believe that God has forgotten them and that they're not loved and that they failed because of their sin, God reminds them this. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You are, who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be no more than those of the one who who have a husband or has a husband. Basically saying, look, the promise is that God has not forgotten you. God's saying, I am your hope and I am not done. That is the promise of Genesis chapter 12. And so what Paul is pointing out here in a very, and this is a very big deal culturally to the Judaizers, because he, he throws in two lines there where he's talking about Sarah and Hagar. And he says, what city currently represents Hagar? Jerusalem. It's like if we could name a certain city that finds itself underneath the law and enslaved, what would be the capital city for that place? Jerusalem. But if we were looking for the, the capital city for those that are underneath the promise, the, the hope of what God has done, it's the new Jerusalem. This is where Paul is finally sticking it to the cultural purity of the Judaizers. He's saying, you guys think you're under God's promise because you're culturally Jewish. But that city you're coming from 
Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai. You're under the law, you're enslaved to the law, and you're enslaving everyone else who you're with. You think you're preaching God, but you're really preaching performance to the law. But that those who are in Christ are in the heavenly Jerusalem, adopted, saved from slavery, fear, and anxiety. Running back to the law makes you children of Hagar. And if children of Hagar under the law, slave to constantly trying to modify your behavior and never progress. Working out, trying to be justified and sanctified the wrong way. Let me, let me give you guys an example of this. Okay? Because frequently, this is like with what's happening here is what we see a lot today. And, and really, in reality, it's the idea of just doing the same thing over and over again that doesn't work. Okay? And so, so in my 10 plus years in ministry now, a, a frequent issue I see within the confines of the local church is sexual sin both in men and women. And so I, I've talked and counseled numerous men and women in that area over the course of the last specifically five or six years. And here's a frequent thing I see, especially with those who in some way have an addiction to pornography, male or female, doesn't really matter. I'll sit down with them and they'll start talking about it and they're broken over their sin, they hate it. And as I'm talking to them, right, one of the things I'm trying to get at is, what, is what's really going on here, what's really the heart issue of what's happening here. Because, they'll, because inevitably, you know, the, the first thing they want to do is start talking about frequency and how long they've seen victory. That's the first thing they want to run to every time. I'm not saying that those are bad things, but I'm just saying that's the first thing they want to run to every time. And so we'll start talking through the issue, and I'll be like, okay, well, what, what's going on? When did this start? What's going on here? What's been happening here? And what ends up happening is, is I start saying, well, okay, well, what, 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 what have you, how have you been working forward in this knowing that, that you are a Christian? And that's usually, when I start asking that question, that's usually when I can realize how real the gospel is to somebody or not. Because inevitably, I would say 95% of the time I'm talking to somebody, I'm like, okay, so you realize that this is a sin, right? You realize the issue with it. What, what, what's kind of driving you forward? And inevitably, almost every time as I'm talking with them, like, yeah, well, God calls it a sin, so here's what I've been doing. That's the first thing they run to is their performance and the ways they've been trying to defeat this issue in their lives. Oh, I got rid of my computer. I have accountability software on my computer. I check in with my accountability group. Here's all the things I do. And hear me out. Those are not bad things to be doing. They're actually good things to try to be removing that issue from your life. But the problem is, is the first place they're running to in seeing their sin is where? Themselves. And so I, I remember one particular person I was talking to, I was sitting down with them and they, and they started ex explaining to me and I was like, well, what's going on? He's like, well, I need advice. And I'm like, okay. What do you need? He's like, well, I need advice. And you know, like, what kind of things can I do to eliminate this sin? Like, do I need to go to the gym? 
Um, like, do I need to just get married? Do I need to read more? Am I not reading my Bible enough or whatever? And I, like, I'm just sitting there. And I'm like, okay, we need to stop right now. Because what you're describing to me is re-enslaving yourself to the law. You think that because you're a sinner, you aren't the problem. Guys, let me, and, and gals, let me let you in on a secret. Pornography is not the problem you are. Pornography wouldn't exist if you didn't consume it. People all the time are like, we need to pass legislation to get rid of this and whatever else. No. We need to stop looking at it. It's supply and demand. It's economics. If there wasn't a demand for it, it wouldn't exist. Why is there a demand for it? Because you exist and you're sinful. So why then, if you are the one that has the issue and struggles, do you think you are then the one that's automatically going to come to the rescue and defeat it? This is kind of what I was saying earlier with the allegorical problems when we read the scripture. If you make yourself to be the hero in scripture, you then try to be the hero of your own life. And what ends up happening? You fail. Every time. Like, I can do this. I can, I can, the American dream, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and become whatever I want and do whatever I want whenever I can. And then when you inevitably end up failing, your world's shattered. Your entire worldview is rocked. And sometimes, and this is the problem in the South, if enough of the Bible is attached to that same worldview, you start thinking that God's failed as well. In reality, no, you failed. God was put off on the, on the backside of your worldview, and now you're blaming him for your issues. And so I'm sitting there talking with this person, and I'm like, look, I would love to discuss common things you could do that would battle this. But I think that's going to be a waste of time for you and for me. And the person's like, what? You're my pastor. You're kind of being a jerk right now. <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're not going to get anywhere right now with this attitude because here's the reality. What you need right now is a worldview-shattering makeover of your view of the, the gospel and what God has done for you. You need to understand that God still loves you in the midst of that sin. You need to understand that Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that what Paul is saying there is true about God is that God knows you at your worst and still sent his only son to redeem and buy you out of that sin. Then you need to know the promise of the gospel is that in Christ you are given the Holy Spirit as an inheritance, as a sign, as an adopted son. And with that sign and seal of the Holy Spirit, God has promised that he who has begun a good work in you will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning, your performance doesn't change your standing with God. That he does not love you any more or any less because of your sin. And I, this is dangerous ground we're walking on right now. Because basically what I'm telling you is that if you are in Christ, there is nothing you can do that will make God stop loving you. But that's what the scripture teaches us. Guys, in reality, I would love nothing more than to sit up here and tell you guys, actually, you need to perform this way because here's what would happen. The church would grow because I would start becoming your authoritarian dictator and you would all want to start following me and make me happy and keep me pleased. 
but that's not the gospel. The gospel says that you are loved and accepted and adopted, not because of your performance, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And that by running back to performance, here's what you inevitably end up doing. You start sucking out what is really life-giving in your life, which is the gospel. What could be more motivating than knowing that if you've screwed up, you're still loved and accepted and forgiven? If you're truly forgiven and loved, truly accepted and adopted, not based on your own merit, how freeing is that? How liberating is that? And yet, in these examples that I've seen in the church over and over again, we think God is the guy, he's more like the bouncer at the party. He lets you in to the party, but he'll also quickly throw you back out if you're not behaving properly. Guys, God is the owner of the party. And he's if he invites you in, he's going to let you stay. That's how this works. And this is what Paul is communicating to these churches. He's like, guys, look. You didn't know freedom. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, as we talked about last week. You were enslaved to these gods who you thought were gods. They're really demons. Now you know the gospel. I shared, I shared with you when we started this church who the real God of the universe was and what that God had done for you. And you embraced it because it's a beautiful message. And then you're running back to slavery. And look, here's the reality, because here's, here's what some of us want to do right now. We're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this right now. I'm not believing the gospel. And then you're already in your mind, especially you type A people in here, are already creating a list of things you can do to, to run to the gospel instead of, run, instead of really actually resting in Christ. You're already creating a checklist of things, spiritual things you need to do that will stir up your affections for God so you'll, love, so you'll love him more. That's the law. And Paul could immediately say, okay, here's what we need to do. You need to kick the Judaizers out and then here's a list of t 15 things you need to do as a church to, have your, to get your life back on track. And look at what he does instead. Instead, he just reminds them of who they are. He says, now, you brothers, family language, you're my brothers, you're my sisters. This is, this is identity issues, right? Not performance issues, this is identity issues. This is who you are. Now, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. You guys are already adopted if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is who you are. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn it. You are of the promise simply because of what Christ has done for you. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is also now. Here's the translation of what Paul's saying there. Look, you guys are of the promise. You're underneath Isaac. The ones who are coming to you, they're the ones underneath Ishmael, and they're persecuting you right now, trying to drag you back to their side. Same thing happened between Ishmael and Isaac. That, that's what's going on here. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul's only charge to them, get them out of the church, because they're not preaching the gospel. They're preaching a false gospel. And you are already adopted. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You are free because of what Christ has done for you. And as children of the promise, you get what Abraham was promised. So here's where I, here's where I want us to close out today. Because a lot of us in this room if I said, what has Christ done for you, could articulate to me intellectually what Jesus did for you on the cross. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I couldn't get to God on my own. Jesus came, lived a perfect life for me, died on the cross for my sin, and forgives me. And that through his death, burial, and resurrection, re resurrection he satisfied God's wrath and gave me his righteousness so that I could be adopted as a son or daughter of God, forgiven and loved underneath his grace and that by repentance and faith I can come to him a lot of you guys could articulate that to, to me more beautifully than I just said it and, and, and some of you guys are like as you come in here like yeah I'm on board with being adopted as a son of or, or daughter of God through Christ but then practically as I said earlier we run back to the law and place ourselves under the law I do it all the time try to reduce following God down to doing some things And the reason why is the same reason the Galatians struggled. It's because we don't understand our birthright. Now track with me here, right? Because this is, what, this is the point that Paul was making by using Hagar and Sarah. That being adopted in Christ carries with it rights, privileges, and an inheritance that is true of you, that you don't have to do anything to earn. It's just simply true of who you are. That, that the gospel does this. See, some of us think that we become a believer and we grow in Christ and then that inheritance, eternal life, whatever it is that you think being a Christian is, means that you work, join the church, put sin to death, and work, 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 and you get worn down. And two things end up happening if you follow that line. You either give up and resign and stop trying to follow God. You might say you believe, but you stop trying altogether. Or you bear down and resolve, and you become a Pharisee and a legalist, and people hate being around you. And I would argue that a true understanding of what God has done for you is the only motivating factor you need to walk forward in the Christian life. So I'm gonna share with you guys three things that I think are true of those who are in Christ, okay, just three. And I'm gonna pray that, that the Spirit, in, in hearing these things, might stir up in you your affections for God in thankfulness and in truth, okay? 
Number one, this is true of anyone who is in Christ. You get an inheritance, and that inheritance is God himself. Okay? When I use the term inheritance frequently with people, they're like, how much money am I getting? Can't wait, can't wait to find out what it's going to be. Or maybe you get grandpa's old car or whatever it is. The inheritance that you get as a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, having trusted in him for salvation, is God himself. Let me share with Psalm 73. Will you throw that up there for me, Josh? Psalm 73. This is David. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Because here's one of the ways that I know that as a professing Christian you're authentic or not. When the world around you is rocky and jacked up, God is your portion and your rock and your shelter, your hiding place. He's, he's what you want. Lose your job, still got God. Lose your kid, still have God. Lose your family, still have God. Lose your health, still have God. This is why when John Piper says that God is the gospel, that's what he means. That your affections have changed to the point where he is chief among them and he overshadows everything else. He overshadows your performance. He overshadows your desire for attention and fame. He overshadows your desire for self-righteousness because everything pales in comparison to him. I love, look, look what David is saying there. This is someone who has experienced God's presence and mercy. He's like, look, I, my heart and my flesh, I'm the king of the Israelites. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my portion forever. I can be the chief among sinners, and yet God is my portion. The creator of the universe, and I am known and loved by him. So number one, you get God. Number two, you get the promise of future glory. Right, throw 1 Corinthians 15 up there for me. This is what many of us run to first. And I would argue that if this is the first place you run, you might need to do some soul searching. The point of following God is not a future life without pain. It's to get God. But here's a side effect of that life in future glory. So it is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. I Meaning you'll live forever. That's what he's saying there. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. Sounds pretty great. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body and it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. It's the hope that we see in Revelations 21 and 22 of no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin. That God in his mercy, this is what he's going to do in future glory. Notice how in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul doesn't mention any of the things that you have to do to continue to receive that inheritance. He just says, hey, this is it. 
with the resurrection of the dead, which is going to happen because God promised it. Here's the reality of what's going to happen. This is what the future, this is what future glory is going to look like. And so the promises we've seen in the inheritance that you get God and that you get to be a part of future glory of God restoring all things to himself. Now let me give you the last one. Some of you guys are going to like this one. 2 Timothy 3.12, throw that up there for me, Josh. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Be persecuted. Anybody super pumped to follow Jesus right now? That's the promise given to you and I if we really want to follow him. It's the opposite of, many, of what many of you want to hear or a lot of what you hear even in the church in America. Right? In the church in America, right, here's what I at least see on television. You can have your best life now or you're going to have your breakthrough at any moment. Right? Because the gospel that's being preached in a lot of these churches is not a gospel where you get God. It's a gospel where you get you and the best you that you could possibly be. Guys, that's not the gospel. That's Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve already did that. You are a byproduct of that. God does not exist so that you could be the best you. And here's, an, here's another thing that's important that we keep sharing. God's chief goal, I shared this I think three or four weeks ago. God's chief goal in the scriptures and in life is not your happiness but his glory. Let me repeat that again. God's chief goal is not for your happiness, but for his glory. And I said a couple weeks ago that that might sound terrible on the surface, but it's actually really liberating. It's the best thing that could possibly happen. If God is about your happiness, and if God is about you, here's the problem. He will constantly be having to adjust and change because you are fickle and you change constantly. And not only that, Here's, here, like, think honestly for a moment how quickly you become unsatisfied. I can't wait. Like, all I want to do, like, this is like the, the theme of my life for the last 10 years. I, 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 there's a lot of college students that come to the church, and so all I hear from the college students when they first get here is I couldn't wait to get to UF. That was it. So as high school students, like, they couldn't wait to graduate and get to UF. That was it. That was the pinnacle of life for them, was getting into UF. And then they get to UF, and guess what happens? Life's not so great anymore. Then the ultimate pinnacle is graduation, so they stop spending money on their education and start making money for what their education brought them. So they work, 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 work. I can't wait, I can't wait. The pinnacle is here. I can see it. Some of you guys, it's two years. Some of you guys, it's seven. But you do it. And then you graduate. You have that degree. And then what happens? Well, you've arrived, right? The pinnacle of happiness has finally gotten here. You can get out and you can go get that job and make money. Then you're miserable at your job. I don't like my boss. I'm smarter than my boss. I want to do, do this on my own. I want to make money. I want to make more money. I want to have more control. I want to have more power. So you work your way up. You work your way up or you start your own business or do whatever you can. Then you hit your 30s and you think, okay, I've arrived there. This is exciting. I've done that. And then what happens? You're still dissatisfied. I'm not happy. I have all the money I need. 
was told that I needed this big house. I've got this big house. Had the car I want. Still dissatisfied. I know what I need to do. I need to get married and start a family. That, that will fix it. That, that's what's missing. So you get married. You have kids. Kids wear you out. They're a lot of work. They don't obey. Your life comes around about them. And then you're like, oh, I'm dissatisfied. I can't wait till the kids graduate and go to college so I can be alone with my wife again. Kids graduate, move on. Then what do you want? I want the kids back. I miss them. And you start pressuring your kids to have grandkids. This is the cycle of humans in this country. And here's the good news. That's not what God's all about. God's about Him. He's about His glory. And so here's the good news. You can do all those things, and they can be used to bring Him glory, not you. Because you will never be satisfied unless you're satisfied in Him. God is for God, and because God is for God, you're not required to live or do anything that meet some standard because Jesus has done that for you already. You are simply free. And so here's where I want to leave us this morning. I want to encourage you to do something for me. I want you to sit and think upon those three things that I just shared with you. And as you're thinking through them, I want you to harpen back on verses 30 and verse 31 in Galatians chapter 4. And maybe even go all the way back to verse 21. What, where am I placing myself under the law? And here's the good news. Repent. God, I'm sorry. I'm trying to distort the gospel into something it's not. I cannot do it on my own. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. And you're going to come up here and you're going to take communion. Thankfully. Thankful for what God has done for you already in Christ. And then you're going to worship Him. You're not going to resolve to be a better Christian. You're not going to come up with a nine-step program. I want you to simply enjoy Him and worship Him. Because that's why all this was done. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you would use men like Paul in the midst of disobedience and rejection of the gospel to lovingly call this church back to you and freedom in you. Lord, may we be marked by that and may that encourage us to share the good news with those around us. May we be marked not by living perfect Christians' lives, but be marked by a people who have a great Savior. Father, we love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.